Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaze and Dr. Daniel Kanema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hello, welcome to episode 17. Hello. Today we are going to be talking all about some optical infrared telescope. So we've talked a lot about astro- uh, radio astronomy because I'm a radio astronomer, but we're gonna we're gonna squish those wavelengths down a bit today. Talk about optical, uh, just like the Salt Telescope in the, in Sutherland in in South Africa. But this time we're going to be talking about optical near infrared telescopes that are up in space. Yeah. So first we're joined by Dr. Steve Crawford. Uh, He's from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Maryland in the USA, and that is the home of Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope, and will be the home of JWST, which is the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launching soon. Soon. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) It's delayed by a few years, so we're not exactly sure when, but uh, uh, it's going to be the successor to Hubble. And at STSCI, there's the the uh, control center for JWST. And I've, Dan, did you know I've actually been there? I did know that. <laughs> um, pretend you don't. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So uh, it was in 2016. I went to the US for a conference. I went to the space telescope, space telescope. Science Institute, STSCI, um, home of Hubble. And uh, yeah, I got to see the control center for JWST and uh, I even got to see JWST itself. Yeah, so so for the listeners, JWST is this huge telescope which is going to go up into space. I think the current plan is 2021 for for the launch. And it has 18 hexagonal mirrors which will fold out when in space. And a total diameter of just over six meters when it's folded out. So Hubble was 2.4 meters. So it's more than double the size of Hubble. Yeah, it's a beast. Um, so I saw it at NASA Goddard. It was in the um, construction chamber and it had just uh, that day they had unfurled the solar panels and it was facing towards us in the viewing gallery. And so we could see all of the hexagonal mirrors and they were amazing. They're gold, the golden color. I don't know if they're plated in gold or something golden colored, but it was really, really incredible. It's a spectacular uh, telescope. So we're all going to be nervously holding our breath when it launches. I think it's actual actual gold because it's a really good reflector in optical and infrared. That would make sense. So we spoke to Dr. Steve Crawford, who is responsible for the data delivery for JWST. He was previously here in South Africa, uh, who and he was responsible for the data products for SALT, the SALT telescope. Uh, and now he has moved to the Space Telescope Science Institute to work on how we get from JWST this telescope, which will be in space, the images it takes, the data it takes, and how we get that to the scientists. So the scientists can do as little as possible, <laughs> or they can get their products ready for science. So that's a, a large project which happens within the Space Telescope Science Institute. Yeah, and then we're going to speak to Professor Jayan English from the University of Manitoba in Canada, and she's going to tell us about once we've got the data, once we've done the science, how we then get that to you, 
to the public uh, and how we can uh, visualize the data and the images so that uh, you get to see it because if you, you there's no eyepiece to Hubble or JWST, you can't look through it. And even if you did, you wouldn't see these beautiful pictures that we see in, in beautiful books and online. There's a lot of thought that goes into designing those images. We'll hear about that from Jayan. Great. So let's hear what Steve had to say. Today we're joined by Dr. Steve Crawford, who is joining us all the way from the, the USA, uh, Maryland, and the Space Telescope Institute. Uh, welcome to the Cosmic Savannah, Steve. Thanks, Daniel. It's <laughs> nice to be here. Um, you're not just joining us all the way from the USA. Uh, you have a, a history with SAO and South Africa, having worked here for many years. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your time here and what you did? Sure. Um yeah, I actually moved here in 2006 uh, to actually uh, start with the SALT uh, commissioning to help with that and to start using SALT uh, when it was having its first light. Um, after a little after a year of being here, I took up a position as a SALT science data manager. And in that position, I, I helped to oversee uh, the data as it came off the telescope and was then distributed to the partners. And I uh, helped develop the software, which was maintaining all of that architecture, but also for uh, calibrating the data. So making the data ready for being used by by the scientist. The during that time, I also did my own research um, into a, a wide range of different things of um, all basically all the different things that we could look at salt with, um, and was very much involved with the commissioning and and getting the telescope off the ground and uh, being used by the community. Yeah, we've spoken once before, we spoke with Moses Mokhotsi in the first episode uh, about SALT and how it is managed, that it's a Q-scheduled telescope, um, partners put in proposals for observations, and then the SALT astronomers go off and, and observe them, um, and then deliver their data uh, to to the partners. So so when you, you talk about this this data management role that you were involved in, um, so, so is there some sort of... Um, system that's in, in place, automated system, or is, is this something which is, is fairly manual still? Very early on, we set up an automatic system that would actually, um, once data uh, came down from the, the telescope, so the observations would happen up in Sutherland and the data would be transferred down to Cape Town. And that was set up as, a, as an automatic transfer. And then each morning uh, following the observations, there'd be actually uh, the, the salt pipeline, which would run the data through an automatic process where it would clean up the data a little bit and organize it. Um, it would then remove detector effects and instrumental effects, which is which were seen in the data. And then it would actually make the data available to the principal investigators who were doing the astronomers who are doing the observations around the world. And so basically, uh, right when uh, after you're having your, your first cup of coffee in the morning, you'd also be getting your salt data from the night before. And so you could start looking uh, at the science right away. So it's nicely, neatly packaged and cleaned and produced for you. Uh, in terms of uh, detector and instrument defects you, you mentioned, wh what do those look like and how do we detect them? How do they come about firstly? And then how are you detecting them and removing them? Yeah, the instruments on SALT, mainly the detectors were charge-coupled devices. And with these, they basically turn uh, photons of light into electrons. Um, 
in that process, there's um, different effects that have to be corrected for, uh, like the bias level um, of the detector, um, the response of the detector. Not all of the pixels have the same response. Um, and also how those uh, detectors are oriented. You'd also have uh, instrumental effects, especially when using um, the spectrographs on SALT. Uh, two of the main instruments, or, or the main instruments on SALT are, are SALTICAM and Imager, and then the Robert Stobie spectrograph and the high-resolution spectrograph, which break light up into the individual components. And one of the things you'd want to do is actually match that light that you're observing with the wavelengths of that light. And so we provide tools to actually allow allow the um, wavelengths to be actually measured. And so you could actually know exactly at what wavelength and how bright your source was was shining. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty complicated. So you you're you're doing all of this stuff so that the the observer doesn't have to get into these details. I assume that's correct. It's so the observer. Uh, I mean, this has to be done almost to every data set, no matter what type of science someone is interested in doing. And so we, by having a common pipeline, it means that when the astronomer gets the data, they can actually start at the point of doing uh, the science that they're interested in, um, rather than having to do this process of cleaning up the data. And uh, so now you've moved uh, recently to the Space Telescope Science Institute, and what you're doing there is something quite similar. Right. So there, I've um, uh, just last year, I, I moved there to take up a position as the manager of the group, which is writing the calibration pipelines for the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and in the future, uh, WFIRST. Okay. So for for our, our listeners, Hubble has obviously been up for quite some time, um, and, and still the software is getting worked on? So yeah, the Hubble Space Telescope, I believe it'll be uh, have its 30th anniversary this year. Um, and so it's been up there doing science for quite some time, but there's always improvements people are finding in, in how to calibrate the data. Having a much larger team and, and much more people looking at and working on these problems, you actually can do it to calibrate the data to much higher quality as well. And um, having a space-based, very stable instrument also makes it possible to do much higher calibrations on it as well. And so you can always figure out a better way to actually calibrate the data. And so we're always constantly adding in new and improved ways to do it. And so even after uh, 30 years of operations, although the current instruments haven't been up there the whole time, the Hubble Space Telescope did have several servicing missions, um, but these instruments still have been in operations, some of them for over 10 years now, you know, always figure out a better way to do it. And so it's a never-ending process of actually getting and always actually trying to strive to get better and better. And then now um, with the, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the, the next big space telescope, which is still under construction, uh, I think it's, it's due for launch when? So the James Webb Space Telescope is currently planned for launch in 2021. And uh, can you uh, just give our listeners a, a brief overview of, of what it's going to look like and, and how it's going to improve? It really will be a, a giant step forward in terms of the next major flagship astronomical mission. And... It'll be a six and a half meter telescope. And it's actually similar to SALT in that it will have the primary mirror is actually segmented. So just as the SALT primary mirror has 91 segments around it, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope will actually be a set of uh, a smaller number of primary mirrors which are around it, which will actually form a six and a half meter diameter. And so uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is only two and a half meters across. The other aspect is it will be optimized for infrared observations. And so 
it'll be actually looking at longer wavelengths than optical light. And so the telescope is actually designed to be cooled to very, very low temperatures. Uh, so it can be very, very sensitive at these long wavelengths. And one of the early, very early science drivers for JBST is actually observing the first galaxies. And because these objects have been, the light from these objects have been shifted redward um, due to the expansion of the universe, their light is appearing mainly in the infrared. And so the hope is actually looking at this, being able to very sensitively observe infrared observations, uh, we'll be able to actually capture what uh, galaxies were like very, very early on in the universe. And uh, JWST is obviously another space telescope, but it's unlike Hubble, is not going to be sitting in a low Earth orbit, which means we're not going to be able to service it or make any changes once it's up there. Correct. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons it, it is actually uh, very important to get it right the first time. And the telescope will actually be launched out to uh, what's called L2, which is a Lagrange point um, uh, where, uh, which will be out beyond the, the Earth and out beyond orbit of the Earth, um, where it will actually have a stable position to be able to make its, its observations. Um, and be away from the effects of the Earth's atmosphere or, or Earth's uh, magnetosphere. And so it'll be a little bit further out where I'll also be able to be help make these observations. From a software point of view, though, I assume there's going to be some sort of upgrade policy. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be able to do software upgrades remotely. Yes, yeah. You'll, you'll still need to actually be able to update commands and, and uh, um, send information to the telescope and also, we of course need to download the data from the telescope. Um, and so, the one of the things that they'll have to do is actually align the mirrors. And so, just like Salt needs to actually do a, a alignment of the mirrors before it observes, um, one of the big first challenges for JBST will be actually once the the mirrors are actually the overall primary mirror is being sent up folded, um, and then it will actually unfold. And then you'll have to actually align these primary mirrors. And so this um, process of mirror alignment will be one of the big uh, first challenges for JWST after launch. Because obviously we need that mirror alignment to be of like, what, nanometer precision or something? Yeah, incredibly uh, high precision to actually be able to return uh, exquisite images. And we're going to strap it to a rocket, launch it into space and let it fold out out there on its own. Correct. Yes. The other thing is the uh, the sun shield. There's a, a sun shield that will also unfurl um, that will help keep the overall telescope um, cold. And so that's an, uh, another thing that has to happen during the the early right. After, it starts to happen right shortly after launch with the process of having the uh, the telescope open up and uh, be ready for doing observations. That is going to be a stressful launch. It is. I mean, I think there's no launch which isn't stressful, and it will also be a a, a high stress period um, afterwards. Um, but that's why people are spending a lot of time and a lot of effort to make sure it goes right. And so, um, it's it's something that you do actually want to you know take your time and and uh, and there's actually some a lot of really great people who are uh, trying to actually make sure that uh, this is a, as hopefully as a big a success as it can be. And then um, back to the data, which we started talking about, um, your involvement uh, with SALT. So SALT was delivering package data to, to the partners. What is the policy with Hubble and then JWST in terms of data packages? Are you guys doing a similar sort of uh, 
reduction uh, first and then delivering it to the uh, whoever's doing the observation? Yeah, it's actually, um, I mean, much of the reductions uh, done by the Space Telescope Science Institute was an inspiration for what we do here at SALT. Um, we actually based a lot of our, some of our early software after software that they initially developed. And also this process of, and this policy of actually delivering ca- calibrated products. Space Telescope was really one of the first places to actually do this. And they have been actually delivering high quality um, delivered products, uh, calibrated products for their instruments for a very long time. And But it is actually very simil- similar to the same process that we go through here at SALT, where data is delivered to the headquarters. Uh, in this case, it's transmitted down from the telescopes to the ground stations and then sent on to the Space Telescope Institute in, in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and there, the pipelines will actually process the data. They'll make both uncalibrated data available to the community and as well as uh, calibrated data products as well, uh, including combining together multiple different uh, images to make even deeper images, um, removing all these instrumental effects. Um, and actually, just like the the SALT data product and the, the HST product, they're available to the investigators who initially proposed uh, the observations uh, initially, uh, they have a a time period where they have exclusive access to that data set. Um, But then it becomes public and available for anyone to the world to actually do science that they're interested in doing with it. And that's been one of the really big successes with the Hubble Space Telescope um, is making uh, their data archive public to astronomers all over the world to actually use. And so, and that data you know, the two things are that, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope has a open skies policy, so anyone in the world can apply to use it. But also, all of the data is is openly is open access, and so uh, once it actually becomes available to the public, anyone in the world can also actually use it to do their science that they're interested in. And JWST is going to follow the same policy. Yep, JWST will have the the same policy where, um, hopefully, you know. Uh, really the idea of getting the ideas and the proposals from uh, and and the best ideas from around the world so that anyone you know can have a, a great idea um, for how to actually use a telescope and we certainly hope to see uh, some proposals from South Africa and and around Africa to to use the telescope and then to get those best ideas and and use the telescope you know when you have something which is uh, this unique of a res- resource um you really want the best ideas and and the best science to be done and then to make the data available so that you know people can actually think of things that you never even would have first thought to look at the data to actually go and and take a look with it um and it also makes science more reproducible um because people can actually you know, verify for themselves the results of others and so I think it's one of the, once again, it's a it's been a long time policy at, at Space Telescope, and I think it makes for, really helps the flagship missions of the the Institute um, really produce the best science. You um, you mentioned at the beginning um, that you, some of, some of your research that you did when you were back here in, in South Africa working for SALT, do you still manage to maintain any, any research time in your current role? Um, I still do a bit of research, um, not quite as much as I used to, uh, but I still have a, a couple of projects um, ongoing, some with um, collaborators still here in South Africa, um, uh, particularly looking at um, eight active galactic nuclei and trying to measure their masses. And then I have some current work uh, going on with the Hubble Space Telescope looking at star-forming galaxies and galaxy clusters. 
Um, I'm also um, active in a few other projects looking at you know different ways we can actually improve software for astronomy. And so developing um, software packages that actually help to uh, enable science in astronomy. Are these uh, general general astronomy packages, so not specific to a specific telescope? Yep. So these are actually things, um, the, the one project is called the AstroPi project. And from that is actually something I started contributing to uh, while here in South Africa. Um, but it's to develop a common library in uh, the Python programming language for for astronomy. And from this, we have several affiliated packages that we've developed so that people can take these tools and then build their own, uh, build upon them. And so it's kind of taking this idea of uh, building on top of the the, the shoulders of others. Um, and so the AstroPy projects provide some basic tools for reading and writing data, um, for some cosmology and statistics. Um, and then from these, you can build slightly more general tools for data reduction or spectroscopic analysis. And then from these, you can then build the tools that you actually write your paper with. And so it can be actually a very productive relationship of, of making things, making it more easy to do science. Mm. And, um, and, and it must be incredibly beneficial to uh, students. And, you know, guys are just getting into the field. You don't have to, you know, re <laughs> reinvent the wheel every single time you want to read in a file or something. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that hopefully helps everyone out of not having to reinvent the wheel. Um, and it's developed completely in the open um, so that also anyone can actually contribute. And so uh, we've had contributions from around the world and contributions from here in, in South Africa. And it's um, a great open project. It's not at all competitive, but it's, it's collaborative. By d- doing things in the open and, and contributing you're actually making everyone else's, you know, you're advancing your own science, but at the same time, you're also making everyone else's life easier to actually do more science. And advancing the field. I mean, it's, you're moving everything forward a little bit smooth, yeah. smoother, like, you know, nobody's getting caught up on writing the same old library over and over again. Exactly. And it's one of the things that made my transition easier from South Africa to Space Telescope Institute because they were both um, using the same tools. So th- most of the the calibration software and the pipelines that were developed were both written in Python. Um, and so some of the things, it was actually, uh, you know, kind of nice to actually, as I, as, as I kind of said, we based a lot of the early um, SALT stuff on things that Space Telescope had actually built, um, along with things built by other telescopes as well. Uh, but then when I'm showing up in at Space Telescope, they're actually using some of the tools that I wrote here uh, on uh, on some of the stuff that they were doing there. And so it wasn't um, just, you know, going into something new, but it was actually, there was some stuff that was pretty familiar. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, uh, that is definitely one of the advantages of um, open source code. And I mean, I've, I've experienced it myself in my work. It's, it's, uh, it really is a, as you say, it's not a competitive environment at all. It's incredibly collaborative and everybody's very supportive and um, very reactive to when you have a complaint or something's not working, please help me. And everybody sort of jumps and, and wants to be the person to fix it. Yeah, and it, I think also what's great is that really anyone can actually help contribute to it. Uh, you know, we, we've had people of a wide range of different backgrounds contribute to the project, um, not just astronomers, but you know, software engineers and also people who are doing technical writing. 
Um, but it's also will find its use in other places as well, and not just astronomy. Um, it has been used in other science fields. Um, has been used by the amateur astrometry com- uh, amateur astronomy community. <laughs> I've been doing too much astrometry lately, actually. So it's um, what is uh, astrometry? Astrometry is the measure of uh, the position of stars, and so um, you're actually measuring how accurate uh, a star's position is. And yeah, we were right before I left. I was working on some working on a group who was working on some software to improve the astrometry measurements for Hubble Space Telescope data. And so uh, hopefully that will be a release soon. Uh, but I definitely have that on the uh, <laughs> on the mind. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a it's a it's a something that actually came up once before on a, on a, one of our podcasts. We were talking about uh, asteroids and tracking near near Earth asteroids and and their astrometry and. You know, it's 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 dangerously close to astronomy, but very different. Yeah, it's it's part of a overall astrono- astronomy, <laughs> and uh, but it's it's only one of many fields. So, <laughs> um, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, it was great to chat to you, and uh, all the best with your endeavors with Hubble and JWST and W First in the future. We didn't really talk much about W First. Well, maybe then I'll have to come back. <laughs> great. Um, yeah, all the best, and and thank you once again for joining us. Thanks so much. Actually, I didn't realize Steve had worked on AstroPi. Yeah, that was one of his uh, things he started. Yeah, I remember there were a lot of hack days that he did to try and develop AstroPi when he was still working at Salt. Oh, right. I mean, it's for, for those listening, uh, AstroPi is part of the Python coding um, language, and it's specifically for astronomers, astronomy. And it's so good. I wish that we'd had it fully functioning when I was doing my PhD. Oh, my goodness, it would have helped so much. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. But now it's it's kind of fully functioning. And it's only since I've moved to South Africa that uh, a year or more ago that I've learned to use it. I use it every day. Yeah, it's a great, great project. And now it's getting updated regularly. And uh, it'll be used more and more by the students to make their lives a bit easier. Yeah, so basically I use it to read in my data, to um, analyze it, to visualize it, to, yeah, do my whole analysis and get an answer out at the end, do some science. Yeah. So now we've got these data products out of the likes of SALT, Hubble, JWST, and I guess we need to find out next how the astronomers make these beautiful images that we see. And to speak to us about that is Professor Jayan English. Yeah, so we spoke to Jayan uh, recently and she was telling us all about, so she was visiting uh, South Africa to work with IDEA, I-D-I-A, which is... The Inter-University Institute for Data-Intensive Astronomy. What is IDEA? So basically it's this inter-university institute which takes astronomical data, which these days is very, very big and hard to deal with. It puts it on a big cluster and tries to deliver it to the scientists in the the cleanest, easiest way. So rather than the scientists having to download to their individual laptops all of the the data they need to analyze it, you can just log on to IDEA through a portal and work directly on this big cluster on your data. Everything's at your disposal. They also have the IDEA Visualization Lab attached to that, which helps in creating beautiful visualizations of your data, which 
is not just for public consumption or for fun, but actually a great way to explore your data and try and understand what's really going on. Yeah, and I'm just about to work with the um, idea staff to put our data into it and, and examine it like that, which I'm really excited about. It's a, a wonderful institute and they're doing some really wonderful work. Yeah, so Jayan was working with them on their visualization and uh, because she is uh, an expert in the intersection of art and science and how to translate them to each other and how both are really essential for um, communicating and bringing astronomy to, to all of us. So Jayan has, is, is an artist. She has a, a degree in art. She also has a degree in physics and a PhD in astrophysics. So she's very well-rounded and, and great for this, for this role. So she spoke to us about a supernova remnant where a star has, a massive star has gotten to the end of its life. It's died in a big supernova explosion. And what's remaining after that is what um, Jayan is, is looking at. And she's also using that and other data products to make the, some of the beautiful images that we've seen coming from Hubble and, and other telescopes. So let's hear from Jayan. With us in the studio here in Cape Town today, we have with us Professor Jayan English from the University of Manitoba. Welcome, Jayan. Thank you. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, where you're from, and, and why you're here in Cape Town? Okay, I'm a Canadian and I'm a professor at the University of Manitoba in the middle of the prairies. And uh, we have a small astronomy group there. And one of my main interests is visualization and astronomy. And here in Cape Town, they have uh, the universities are interacting together and cooperating on a very interesting big data endeavor. And one of the components for understanding big data is visualization. So I came to see their visualization lab and all of the experiments and visualization that they're doing. You're visiting the idea visualization That's lab. That's right. Which is the Inter-University Institute for Data-Intensive Astronomy. Oh, well done. <laughs> I just wrote a proposal for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, so the Idea Institute is set up at UCT, and as you said, they're doing some visualizations of astronomical data. So what astronomical data do you work on? The astronomical data I work on is wide-ranging. So I do like radio data because it's a very rich uh, data set, so you have velocity in that data set. Um, but I also do uh, optical through infrared data, so when I'm making images, I will be using, I will be making things for NASA as well. So I make images for my projects that I work on with colleagues, the science research projects. And I also will make images, for example, if NASA contacts me and says, could you do an image? And the last one was um, radio data, radio continuum data. So there's no velocity in those radio data sets, but... Uh, it was a very interesting one. It, it involved uh, data from the Canadian Galactic Plane Survey and data from the Very Large Array, and it was about a pulsar. And a NASA satellite had been used for the timing associated with the pulsar, but they wanted an image to point out what was really going on, and that pulsar is escaping from its supernova remnant. So I don't know how far back you want to go here, so maybe we should tell people what a pulsar is. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to do it? Yeah, let's do it. 
Okay. Do you want Do you want to start okay, with that? Okay. So, so essentially, what a pulsar is is the remnant of a collapsed star. So, um, it's a a neutron star spinning very very rapidly, and it sends out a pulse, a beam of radiation, light, uh, every time that pulsar spins uh, around to, then the beam crosses uh, the path of Earth. So yeah. we measure that as a little blip, a little burst yeah. of light. Yeah, in less than it, it will be giving us blips in under a second. So it's <laughs> 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 um, and when it forms, when the star is uh, dying, this massive star is dying. The core of the star implodes and the outer envelope explodes. So you get a supernova remnant. It's become a supernova when it explodes. Uh, it becomes a supernova remnant, so it's this kind of a spherical distribution around the core of the star, which is what becomes what is once it's collapsed, imploded. It's the pulsar. Now this pulsar got a kick, and so it's not in the center of its supernova remnant. It's been kicked out, and there's a trail of electrons, plasma, flowing behind it. So it's got this kind of little spike coming out of the of the supernova remnant and at the very tip of it is the pulsar. So the supernova remnant is like this cloud of expanding gas around where the supernova exploded. Well, it's uh think of a instead of a cloud like um a cloud in the sky, it's more like a shell. So it is gas, it's a gas shell and it's expanding outwards. Right. Um and then how would this pulsar get a kick? Yes, that's the mystery. So it can be, for some reason, that explosion can be uh, asymmetric. So it's not it's not sitting in exactly empty space, but there's the interstellar medium surrounding it. So the explosion can be somewhat non-uniform, not the same in all directions. And so that's one of the ways they think it gets a kick. And what does this look like? You talked a lot about the, your work in data visualization, which I guess yes. is seeing things, right? Um, what does it look like? So you can Google it, just Google cannonball pulsar. And what it looks like is a shell of glowing gas. Uh, there's some infrared clouds that have been colored blue. They, they've been assigned the color blue. Uh, and then you will have this little spur coming down out of the lower left side of this shell of expanding gas. And uh, yes, it just looks like a little spur. But this is really hard to observe. Like this needs high resolution, which they now have much better at the, they've upgraded the very large array, the VLA. So you can now observe these. So I had to take the high resolution image from the VLA and merge it in with the lower resolution survey data from the Canadian Galactic Plane Survey. So the survey data has the full shell of the supernova remnant. So this image has radio? It's mainly radio and infrared. And infrared. No, no optical. No optical. No optical. Okay, so you said that the image has been colored blue. For the infrared, and the rest has been colored uh, warm colors, so kind of brassy golden warmer, orangey almost colors. Very three-dimensional looking. The shell's very three-dimensional looking. There's some pinks and greens in it. So if we were to go out uh, at night and look through a powerful telescope ourselves up in at, at this object, would we see it in blue and rusty colored? 
No, you wouldn't see it in any colors at all because our eyes don't see in the radio wavelengths. So indeed, you wouldn't see it at all. <laughs> so our eyes are not good detectors. Uh, so the telescopes are much better detectors. They see in wavelength ranges, energy ranges that our eyes can't detect in. So they'll see in the, um, you know, if you're looking at x-rays, you know, you can't see your bones or your part, your anybody near you, your co-host's bones, you can't see them, but you have an X-ray detector. So our telescopes are like that. We have a radio detector, we have an X-ray detector, we have an infrared detector. So it's all these things that your eyes can't see. So these images are visualizing the invisible. So about 70% of our brain is geared towards vision. And so the vision is how we grasp and understand what's going on, and then we measure, right? So we will select from an image where to do our measurements. So all of our data is put into visual form that we then examine. So the data from a radio telescope, actually any telescope will be black and white, and then we assign colors to it. Well, technically it's not even black and white, right? It's just radio. <laughs> <laughs> it's invisible to us. Yes, yeah. So, okay, so I've got a million questions there. Okay. <laughs> Dan, do you have any questions first? Well, I was just going to say that it's quite interesting, this, and I think it's something a lot of people don't realize. When they have these beautiful pictures on Instagram or as their backgrounds on their computers, they download these beautiful uh, pictures from powerful telescopes. I think a lot of people don't realize that those colors aren't real, and that's your, your business, right? They are real in the sense that we're color coding science. So we're not color coding what your eye would see. Your eye is very misleading and you can think of that in terms of optical illusions. So your eyes aren't sensitive enough. They're not collecting enough photons, little packets of light. So you're not seeing things in, as I just explained because of the energy ranges, but even in your own energy range, you're not seeing everything you could see. Even photographic film is a better detector of the light in the optical wavelengths. So if you want to show, say, what an element is, your eye will be misleading. Your eye sees maybe something, at faint light levels, your eye does not see color very well, and things turn a ghostly green. Now, we know that oxygen, if you put a electricity through it, is gonna glow green, okay? And we know that hydrogen's gonna glow red. Now we can have a lot of hydrogen, but your eye's gonna see it as ghostly green. So you're gonna think it's oxygen when it's really hydrogen. So we make our measurements and we know what's there. And then we want to say, well, what's there? Not what your eye would mislead you to think is there, but what is really there. So the colors are real in the sense that they're encoding the scientific physical information. So in the visible band, we can see from red to blue, uh, and everything in between. And red is of longer wavelength, blue is of shorter wavelength. So if you have infrared, which is of a shorter wavelength than radio, yes, would you encode the infrared to be bluer than the radio? That is right. And that's why my infrared is blue in the picture. <laughs> All right. So, so you are maintaining that sort of uh, intuitive view of different wavelengths, but shifting it to wavelengths we could see. So in that particular image, yes and no. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> so you can, for some of the, you're using multiple data sets. 
from different telescopes, and you've got at each different telescope multiple data sets that you can select from to assign color to. So uh, you can do that straightforward shift as a first approximation, if you like. But then what you also want to do is add spatial depth and visual interest. So you can also add in some of the data sets with uh, assigned colors that will give you spatial depth. So warm colors come forward, cool colors go away. This is artist speak, not science speak, right? So those are the definitions in art. If it recedes, it's a cool color. So in the Cannonball Pulsar, for example, I could make that look very three-dimensional by using more than one data set from the Canadian Galactic Plane Survey. I'm using warmer colors than the blue, so I am keeping that in a in a natural kind of an order, but I am also able to add a, a warmer, say, pinkish tone and a cooler greenish tone to give this uh, supernova remnant a very spherical feeling. So what I like to do is encourage people to use the techniques from visual art and design in order to make engaging pictures. So the whole point of making these pictures are to engage the public so that they actually know they're there and see them. And then the public, we hope, will be encouraged to go and find out more information about those art objects. So we can't tell everything about the object in our image. It would just not be clear at all if we included everything from x-ray through to radio in that image. Um, you would not even notice the pulsar probably. So uh, we it's kind of an illustration in a way. It, it, well, an illustration in the sense that even a photograph here, if I took a picture out here at SAO, I'm taking a picture of Jacaranda in front of a beautiful white dome. I have selected that perspective, and I'm not showing you everything about SAO. And I'm showing you a very romantic picture in that photograph, right? So even when I make an astronomy image, there's no way that I can't have a perspective or context. So I, have, I am selecting things to carefully present a scientific perspective. And I think your interpretation, well, it's definitely hit the mark because it was one of the reasons why I became an astronomer. As I told you yesterday, I have a, a book called Magnificent Universe, which a friend gave me when I was 14. And uh, it's it's full of beautiful pictures from a Hubble telescope and, and other telescopes, you know, with gorgeous uh, planetary nebula, supernova remnants, like you were talking about before, galaxies and planets and everything. And the, the maje majesticness, is that a word? Majestic? Majesty. <laughs> majesty. The majesty. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the majesty of the pictures just inspired me so much that I wanted to learn more about the science and the physics behind these objects. Uh, and then I became an astronomer. Yeah. And uh, and you kindly signed my book for me yes. yesterday. <laughs> One of those pictures was a was a planetary nebula. I, I uh, think. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, that that you the and ring your, nebula. Which one? Ring. Ring, ring nebula. Yeah. Right. Um, that you and your your Hubble Heritage team yes. created. Now, I, as a young person, always thought that these were um, what you would actually see with your eye if uh, you could see things as faint as that, that it was in true colour. But now you, you're explaining that it's not and, and why. So what would you say to someone who says that it, the picture is therefore not true? Your eye is so misleading, your eye does not see the truth. 
And the so way- then the question is, what is truth? <laughs> That's right. So for the the pictures that I'm actually talking about are ones that are made by professional astronomers. So for us, our truth is the scientific truth, not the religious truth, not the philosophical truth, but what we have actually discovered. We're trying to put forward, okay, I measured this um, gas here and it's very hot, right? Which is very confusing when you do it for the public because hot for a scientist is blue <laughs> and not red, whereas the public's going to read it as red. So what we're trying to do is teach them, we have some pedagogy embedded here, teach them that blue is hot, and we're going to say this is a hot gas, and then how do you make that blue look hot? Uh, there are a couple of different visual ways that you can borrow from art to do that, make it glow, for example, uh, make it a warmer blue so that it's uh, more towards a Greeny blue can make it look more hot. And so you want to get the message across that I've discovered hot gas closer to the dying star in the center of that planetary nebula and cooler gas further out and make that a dull red further out. But as you saw yesterday, there are many different solutions for making these images and getting that um, scientific, scientific truth across. You can assign colors in different ways that will do that. So there's many very valid images to do that. And that's another, uh, I think, uh, issue for the public is that they expect them because they expect it to be what, if you, if you could go up to the Hubble Space Telescope and look through an eyepiece, they expect it to look like that. They're surprised when using the same data set, they have uh, a different appearance. And they're certainly surprised when they go stargazing and they don't yeah. get to see such beautiful things through telescopes. But I think at the same time, when you just go up to a telescope and you see it in that ghostly green, you still have like this really dark sky behind the object. You still get a sense of uh, 3D space and a, a kind of glowing object in front of you. And I think people still get excited yeah. about that, right? Definitely. What background do you have that led you to this um, this marriage of science and art and what you call the cosmos and canvas? My first completed degree was in fine arts, visual arts. So I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design University. That's what it's called now. It was the Ontario College of Art. But I, in high school, I did all of the science program. I wanted to be an astronomer since I was young. So I did, you know, three maths and physics and chemistry, uh, managed to avoid biology. And, uh, but at the same time, I had a scholarship for art on the weekends. I would go down and learn how to life draw and so on. So my interest was science, but my heritage is, my heritage is art. So um, my father was a landscape painter. Uh, my aunt painted people. And so I did a lot of art since I was very young. In your opinion, what's the importance of what you do, of making these images, of engaging the public with the beauty of, of astronomy? Well, there's a, a few things. A lot of people talk about it as giving back to the taxpayer. So they can't read a professional paper, right? So you give back to them by producing these images. And they're very curious. And it's great to like uh, engage with people. But uh, on a broader philosophical level, it's almost like we're creating everybody's belief system. So 
most people don't believe in a flat earth. And where does that come from? That comes from contemporarily, that comes from scientists, right? So people have an understanding that, that there are black holes, that they exist. And where does that come from? That comes from scientists. And so we're creating a, a belief system in a way. So it's dissemination of knowledge, but that knowledge then leads to what people actually believe about the universe. How many people are doing this kind of work? There are hardly any jobs for this, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. So in terms of jobs, that's always been about a handful. But people are absorbing it into their own practice. For myself, I'll be working on a project. I'll be part of a big consortium. We've got a nice press release coming out, I hope, in November. Our team has discovered that the magnetic fields and galaxies are kind of coming in and out of the galaxy. It's kind of interweaving out into space, up in, up away from the plane, from the disk of the galaxy, but also towards and away from us. And so this is called a magnetic field reversal, and this hasn't been seen before. Now you try and make magnetic field <laughs> images, that's a real challenge. But we have this image. So it's an image that's created as a team. All of these are done as a team. And so instead of having a job where you go and you make these images, instead, if you're embedded in a group, you can be working with the group to produce images and then present them to, to um, press officers who will then disseminate them. So the Cannonball Pulsar was one that was requested, and they did not send it out to an illustrator at NASA. They said, who can make this image that's like in this paper? And they said, oh, well, you know, Jan, she used to work for you. <laughs> and they say, okay, can you make the image? So I'm a prof at a university, and I just volunteer to make the image for NASA. Yeah, I was going to say, it's quite interesting that NASA doesn't do this in-house. I would have expected them to, and it's pretty cool that you're on speed dial. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not on Instagram with all your pretty pictures? Um, so when I send it to a press officer and they agree to do a press release, they put it on Instagram, they put it on Facebook, they put it everywhere. The Cannonball Pulsar, I think, had uh, a million and a half hits the last time that I asked the place to go to is Astronomy Picture of the Day for Astronomy Pictures. If you're really into them, there's a new picture every day, and that's as encouraging as the book that was given to you when you were 14. So if you, sometimes my pictures make it there, sometimes they don't, but uh, at my website, there'll be a link to um, a Google page with my pictures. I was going to say, the astronomy picture of the day is quite an accolade if you can get one on there. Yeah. How many do you yeah. have? Oh, uh, that's, well, we, when I was on the Hubble Heritage team, for that uh, team, we, I was there for two years coordinating. Every single one was on astronomy picture oh of the gosh. day. Oh, my Wow. <laughs> you must be the record holder. Uh, no. <laughs> but that's for the team, and the team won awards yeah. and stuff, too. And then... Um, I would say some half of mine are on APOD. They have our time with radio astronomy images. So yeah. some of them, I, I guess this is the other thing is uh, sometimes, you know, when you're, I, we've talked about the supernova remnant and that's a spherical object and the public really understands that. But sometimes I really get tired of doing uh, the understandable 
comprehensible objects, and I want to do the mysterious things, like all the gas in the middle of the Milky Way's plane. You know, you've got, uh, if you think of the Milky Way as an edge-on uh, disc, you can think of it as uh, a hamburger bun with a slice in the middle, and we, the Canadian Galactic Plane Survey imaged the slice through the middle, <laughs> all the gas there. It's very abstract and gorgeous, but, you know, that's not very comprehensible so they don't put it up on APOD. <laughs> what is the Hubble Heritage Team? Oh, yes. So the Hubble Heritage Team was started uh, around uh, 1998. And it first took the data from the Hubble archive and produced images from the archival data. And sometimes we would ask for extra data from the director's discretionary time. One of the things we did was we interacted with the scientists who collected that data and educated them about image making, tried to get them on side, and uh, scientists like contour plots and things like that and have strong opinions about how an image should present the science information. And we'd have to point out to them, no, you don't want it dead center in the middle of the image because then it'll look like it's falling down and it's static. And so people don't look at it for a long time. And so we had to educate them a lot about uh, visuals. And uh, quite a few years ago, Hubble was due to be decommissioned, but due to pressure from the public, uh, yeah. it was it continued to to be funded and to and to be run and maintained. Uh, and how much of that do you, do you, would you attribute to these some of these beautiful images that you and your team have made? I think quite a lot. I mean, at a certain point in time, NASA had education and public outreach offices that were well staffed. That outreach included a lot of things from video, like they would make things that would go on TV. Uh, they would give all the images are free. So if you're an author and you're making a book like you received, you wouldn't have to pay for those images at all. That's why so many Hubble images are out there. So having all these visuals for their being produced in a little video already that a news, that a news television station could just like grab and put up on their news show and having these pictures ready being like shoveled out to any author who wants to use them any news media outlet that wants to use them um, meant that they didn't have to do any work to get information on science so these were ubiquitous and uh, as people put it, we're being told that this is the best telescope that was ever built. It's the best telescope ever. And now you're saying you're not going to, you know, refurbish it and keep, maintain it and keep it in orbit. Like, were you lying to us about it being this special, precious uh, yeah. scientific instrument? So those images, I think, played a great role. Okay. I mean, this is amazing and we could talk to you <laughs> forever. I have so many more questions, but is there anything else you'd like, any other final messages you'd like to share with the listeners? I wouldn't be discouraged that there aren't any specific jobs or many specific jobs in making the images, but go ahead, uh, astronomers, and make the images anyway. For the, the astronomy students who are interested in this, get that under your belt. You can use it for your papers as well, it's very powerful in terms of um, uh, describing your research in 
real academic papers. But for the public, what I would uh, say is make some images too. Join your amateur or citizen science uh, local uh, astronomy uh, society. They have amazing telescopes and filters now uh, about the quality we had as professional astronomers in the 1980s. So it's no longer really called amateur astronomy. It's called citizen science because you can actually make measurements now. So join any group that's making measurements. And you can do uh, astrophotography is is a really big thing. And, and you'll get the hang of uh, the science. And you can present it how you like to your peers. And if you were dissatisfied and thinking that it was uh, false color, then you can color it the way you want to just to uh, present it to people, and that would be fun. And if you're not into images, you can also do things like hunt for exoplanets. Yeah, there's heaps of ways to get involved. Yeah. Uh, Where can people find you? Are are you online anywhere? Yeah, you just Google J-A-N English. Uh, J-A-N is J-A-Y-A-N-N-E, and I will pop to the top, and I will apologize now for my old school website. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Great. So it was wonderful to hear from JN. And I think to hear about how we actually get to these beautiful images we see, it's a, a long process, right? So there's all of the, the data processing that has to happen. After that, it gets delivered to scientists. Then it gets delivered to people like JN who combine art and science to try and represent this data in a way that our the human eye can actually understand it a little bit better. And I think it was really nice to hear that it's not just about painting it pretty colors. It's actually encoding the information. So velocity, for example, which is just the speed the gas is moving, uh, you can encode that information in, a, in some way so that your eye can actually see how this thing is moving. Uh, it's it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. And I liked what she said about examining what is real and what is the truth and is seeing believing. Uh, I mean, as she said, our eyes aren't actually that good detectors. So just because we see it in one way, does that necessarily mean that that is the truth? It's, it's a quite a philosophical question, and it's really interesting how she's explored that question and how she's brought that to us through astronomy. And it's as a scientist, you kind of learn not to trust your eye, and you rely on things like maths and statistics and, and use that as a more fundamental truth, uh, not be tricked by how something looks. Hmm. And I guess in this way, she's using art to help with the fundamental yeah. truth. So, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting approach. And that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. As always, you can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode and pretty pictures. <laughs> and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Dr. Steve Crawford and Professor Jayan English for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Allnut for music production, Yana Sprink for the astrophotography, Lana Sarai for the graphic design, and Tabisa Fikilepi for social media support. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please recommend us to a friend or rate us. 
We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah.